When I first moved to Boston, one of the biggest culture shocks I experienced was going to the grocery store. Yes, we do have grocery stores and even Whole Foods in Wisconsin where I grew up, but if you've ever walked into a Midwest grocery store, there's an enormous difference from those of the coasts. And that is unfettered, almost annoyingly courteous service. It wasn't that the grocery stores in Boston were mean per se, it was just when you bump into someone and say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, excuse me, you're more likely to receive a distrusting look or a, why the fuck you talking to me? which is something that actually happened to me. In contrast, you can't escape a Midwestern grocery store without being asked how your day is going, being asked where you're from, and maybe even being invited to a barbecue in the most extreme of examples. We're the black labs of people in the Midwest. It's not because we have an agenda, it's just because we're ignorantly trusting of everyone and want to help. Today's guest is someone who not only had initial dreams of becoming a grocery store clerk, and has since up-leveled that ambition considerably, but has an insatiable urge to assist customers along with an intense intellect to scale marketing organizations. Sydney Sloan, the CMO of SalesLoft, is going to walk us through how to use the love of the buyers you serve to grow, as well as how to permeate that sentiment throughout an organization. All coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we showcase the people in the trenches actually doing the work. On today's episode, Sydney Sloan discusses the difficulty of category creation, finding marketing trends with the rule of three, the rift between marketing factions, what to look for when acquiring a company, and understanding what customers need and want. When you think about sales engagement software, because the the market hasn't been around for that long, you know, it's kind of like you know, a lot of different markets where it was like, is this going to be a market or is this, we're going to group this into sales? Like, what have you kind of learned? And I know you've been there a year and a half, but you've been kind of experienced, as you just mentioned, like, what have you learned about the development of a market specifically? Yeah, it's hard to do. Category creation is really hard. I've probably taken 10 runs in it and got three out of the 10. Um, uh, Well, first of all, I think that that times are different in that, um, Places like G2 Crowd, our friends over here, can help create a market. So when there's enough interest in a category where you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of users across all of the different providers in the category and they're willing to rate it and say it adds value, that they're the ones that are actually leading category creation at this point and not waiting for the traditional analysts. So it's, it's quite interesting, like it's a different path now. Um, and then just how many other vendors are trying to get into that category. So a year and a half ago, there were probably five of us in the sales engagement category. I just looked last night. There's like 20 that's on the grid. The list is even longer than yeah. that. So when you start to see energy swelling around a category, I think that's what the traditional analyst used to look at, where it was how, how many vendors will work with us and pay us to actually staff a category. And now because there's all these peer review sites, you can get to that creation quite more uh, a lot quickly and when you think about you know the the three out of ten you just mentioned of like getting right like is that a factor like i imagine it's a huge factor of like is the market ready for a category right like if you were to kind of build out like here are the ingredients you need to actually create a category like how would you think about that um i think first of all you have to have uh competition um and you have to have alignment around um similar problems that you solve enough that it's worth making a category that's clear to the buyers as to what problem you solve. And then I I think it it really is like that there's energy around it. 
that there are people in the in the in the traditional analyst sense that people are calling for inquiries and starting to ask about that category or the problems that that one solves, and so they look at their kind of inbound inquiry um, levels to say. You know, is this something that we can sustain a business on? Because they have to go and hire analysts and do all the research. And so it, it's, there's a cost to them. And are they going to get that cost back? Um, so if you look at it from the analyst perspective, it's worthwhile compared to all the other categories that could form. And I would say, you know, on average, it's probably by the time you start talking to the analysts and, and um, paying them, um, it could still be a year and a half or two years before that category comes so they, they might be like a tech trends or each, each vendor has their own kind of forward view and you can kind of see where energy might be. My advice generally, because I'm, I'm also a, a limited partner in a venture firm called Stage 2 Capital and so I advise a lot of startups and everybody wants to create a category and I'm like, uh, you may want to like look around and see if you can shape a category that's in formation. It's a lot faster to get there. There's already energy. Like, Sometimes it might be easier to join a category than to create one. It's a little bit of a chicken or the egg type question, right? Because I think that a lot of times, at least from my perspective, like category creation, it's very market dependent, right? Like if you can't put enough people in your category or you can't get, you know, that energy as you described to get that analyst, it's really, really tough. And what I find really interesting about, you know, a lot of companies, but especially SalesLoft is not only are you kind of creating this category or at least leading this category, but you're also kind of at that stage where you kind of have to pick your market and pick who you go after, right? And that's a common thing that every company has to go in, go through, but is it something that while this category is, is nascent and growing, has that been harder to kind of pick, do you sell to the marketer who's owning the specialists and BDRs? Do you sell to the sales team who kind of does the sales enablement, engagement software? Like how do you think about you know, those, those two pieces that are kind of in flux and moving yeah. at the same time? So I'm a, an, an account-based person at heart. I wouldn't say account-based marketing, account-based sales, just account-based. Um, and so when, when we look at the, the target customers in our universe, and there's different factors for finding which accounts you should go after. We're, we started with SaaS-based startups. That was the, the heart of what we were doing. And now we're growing in the tech space and we're entering new markets. Like we opened up our London office just about four months ago. As we need to expand our TAM, because we're actually looking at you know, how penetrated are we in our core market to begin with? And so we have those choices of, do we can, you know, how many more SDR teams are left there? In the U.S., it's like, oh, uh, the estimate is about a half a million. So there's still plenty of runway, but when you're looking at the number of competitors that are out there, the number of times we know we've already touched these accounts in terms of their readiness to buy, there is the question of um, how much runway is left at the, at the challenge of the pace that we're required to grow. Right? So we're growing 100% year on year. We're in, when you get to 50 million to get to 100 is a lot harder than it was from 25 to 50. So I have to continue to expand my TAM. Um, and so we are looking at net new buyers in our existing customer base as one pathway. So we talked about, you know, we were the SDR teams. Now we're selling to sales teams, different solutions, and then we're selling to customer success teams. Um, but we're also having to look at new markets um, and when those markets are ready to adopt um, and they're generally those early innovator tech adopter markets like fintech and business services, consulting, those types of, of groups. When is the right time to start really defining, hey, this is not only the three segments we're going to go after max, but 
these are the types of leads and this is how they're going to be identified. Like I know what Salesloft did is you went through and it, it even aligned with the culture of the company and everything like that. Like when is the right time to go through that exercise? Because there's plenty of companies that, you know, they're just struggling to figure out simple product market fit versus like needing to scale from 50 to a million or hundred million. Like, how do you think about that? I think you're constantly doing it. I don't think it ever ends when you're continuing to have to refine who your target addressable market is, who your your target accounts are. So we refresh our target account list like every month um, as we're watching kind of accounts come through and, uh, and accounts be DQ'd um, and needing to keep a particular volume of accounts in that we're constantly working that are in market. And so using kind of intent data to do that. Um, in terms of your question though, like I have just a rule of three. Uh, and if it's a small startup or a large company, um, there's that behavior of, oh, we just sold this big deal to this one customer, so let's go do it again. Yeah, for everything is that. And, now. and yeah. it's like, can you put up a white paper? Can you do this? Because we, we know we just sold to this, let's say, you know, uh, hardware IT infrastructure company, and like, let's, yeah. let's go do that again without doing the research. And so my, my first and most simple is a rule of three. So until we do it three times and I can draw a line through it and show a trend, you know, just keep at it. Like let the sales team do that work um, until we can see a pattern. If there's a real pattern there, then then that might be worth investing. And when in the larger global companies um, that I worked at, that was generally the hardest challenge because a lot of the, the regions wanted to do their own thing. And it got very complex to support when I had 14 products and you know, 20 regions, it just was unsustainable. So I think focusing is the hardest thing to do. Um, my, my favorite F word. Um, and, uh, um, and so, you know, just focusing and aligning the team around what those use cases are and the buyers for those use cases and the companies is what marketing, that, that's my job. Yeah. But, but what's one thing that's really interesting is if you look at companies like the CMO role is like one of the hardest aggregate roles. One, because you get blamed for everything, right? In, in bad cultures, and I know SalesOft has a great culture, but that's where there's a lot of CMOs that come in through a company, right? Like I think the average tenure is like a year, right? 18 and, months. Or 18 months, yeah. there you go, right? But in addition to that, every time a new CMO comes in, it's like every time a new C-level comes in, hey, let's rewrite the playbook, right? And so if you're constantly keeping, you know, things updated and you're not necessarily talking about like updating everything at a high level, but updating at least the, the target accounts, like how do you make sure that you get alignment with not only the company, like your sales counterpart, um, even your product counterpart, because I know you guys have some product-led mm -hmm. growth. Like how do you get that alignment not only amongst the leadership, but also kind of to your own BDRs, your own AEs, to make sure that they're kind of like targeting things properly and not, you know, having what a lot of sales teams do when they're scaling, which is just kind of anarchy. I'll do ideal and then I'll tell what's really going on. Um, so ideally, you've identified the use cases and the plays that your company wants to run. And and it's shocking to me that that still seems to be a new concept for folks. Um, I was just at a different conference last week and, and they were highlighting Tipco as a company that, you know, put together the playbooks. It's like, yeah, those have been around for kind of a while. Um, but to get sales and marketing to align around the, the right use cases that they're going to go after is a challenge. Um, and so it's a give and get, I think, in, in that case. Um, I would say in terms of kind of the real story for where we're at, we've been lucky that we've been selling to people like us from the beginning. So there didn't really have to be a defined play because our our BDRs and our SDRs are reaching out to people like them and selling what they did every day. 
as we're starting to expand to new use cases, we're gonna, we have to retrain, we have to create playbooks. Um, that was a conversation I was having with my CRO last night. Uh, and it really be thoughtful because that's no longer the case. They're now selling to heads of customer success or they're selling to heads of sales and in different use cases. Um, and so that's gonna have to change so we can scale. The thing that I think we do really well is that we have a weekly pipeline meeting that includes me, um, our head of sales, our head of customer success, um, our, our CFO, and one of our founders. And we talk about it every week. We study pipeline by segment, by we, we know how much pipeline we have, how much we need by team, where we're at, renewals, like we, we are looking forward into the business and know where our gaps are to be able to address those challenges. So when it comes to things like target accounts, you know, our, our mid-market team needed more. And so we went back and forth and we went and found more target accounts for us to work and change the way that we go after that segment together. So, but on the emerging and SMB side, we're killing it on the enterprise, we're fine. So, you know, but being able to dig deeper into not just having a single pipeline number and actually looking at it by team, by segment, we're able to pull out and start to address the weak spots in our future strategy. And is that whole team basically, their goals or their comp, is it all tied to pipeline specifically so everyone's unified? Um, the marketing team's goals are tied, and, and my compensation and my bonus are tied to pipeline. Um, the sales team's is revenue. Okay, um, so yeah. The SDR's is number of meetings created, and um, they also get an extra um, bump when it converts into a pipeline and passes a certain stage. Got so it. depending on where you are in the cycle, like my team is all about pipeline. Yeah. Um, SDR's are kind of that blend, and then sales is is totally. revenue, and obviously customer success is, is retainment and net, net new yeah. uh, growth. But it's still pretty aligned, right? It's not like yeah. you're creating leads and then they're creating yeah, we, you know, we, revenue and stuff we, like that. I, I don't believe in a lead score, or, or sorry, in leads as our metric, it's pipeline. Pipeline that converts in a closed one impact. Why is there, and maybe there really isn't, I'm just perceiving it, why is there that kind of rift where some marketers are like lead, 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 MQL kind of focus, and others are like, nope, pipeline, because it best aligns the entire company? Like, do you have any opinion on that? I think it's the evolution of um, accountability by the CMO. And so uh, how much they feel accountable for going all the way to pipeline. And so if there's still that old kind of relationship where, hey, say, uh, marketing, just give me leads and it you know, passes over the, the virtual wall um, and they're like, well, it's not, not my thing anymore. Um, that's the wall that needs to break down. And whether or not they manage the SDRs, I, it drives me crazy when, when moving people on an org chart changes behavior even though that was my last job, right? It's like, why aren't you going in and sitting and listening to what, like you, you paid millions of dollars for all those leads, yet you're not really finding out what's happening to them um, once they go to the next phase. So sit in and listen to the SDRs, how they're talking about it, how they're following up the leads, study the, the mails that are being sent, understand in it how many touches it takes. Like, why, why wouldn't you, I guess is the question, right? And, and if you are doing that, then you are making the impact to pipeline. And, and I think the other piece that's evolved is having ownership of once they're in the buying process, especially as 
the buying process has become more complex, where you have more buyers involved, being able to study, like we have a health metric in terms of by the different segments. So I mentioned the four segments we have. We have emerging, which is under 100. We have SMB, which is up to 750 employees, then 750 to 2,000, 2,000 above is enterprise. We know there's different numbers of buyers depending on the size of company. And so when we're going through in, um, in our buying stages, we want to know how many people in those accounts are engaged, and it gives it a score. So for, for the, the mid-tier, they need th at least three active contacts. For the mid-market, the next one up, SMB is three active contact, contacts. Um, the next one up is five. Enterprise is, is more than that. And our job is to continue to market and try and acquire net new contacts in the buying process, as well as we, we continue to do marketing programs to customers. We're in a highly competitive market. So the more that we can do to continue to push our brand, to engage with those buyers in a meaningful way beyond the sales team is super important. And so we look at influence on closed one revenue and we're about 96%. Um, but that's because we continue to actively market to accounts in pipeline. What's that other 4%? Like referrals I have no idea where something? they came from, yeah, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Now, the mother. Yeah. I know it probably <laughs> depends on the company and like the leaders and things like that. But sight unseen, BDR, SDRs, Report to marketing, report to sales? Uh, it depends on the company. Sure. Um, and but so sight unseen, like what would you say? Sight unseen, I go with sales. You would go with sales? I would go with sales. Um, uh, I think the kinds of people that you want in that job have a mentality set, ideally that they want to go into sales. So hunters. Um, and I think, um, you know, that, 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 that persona, that profile of person um, is likely going to have more of a sales mentality to do that job. It's a hard job. I, I, being a BDR for a day, like, you get hung up on, you know, and, and you're cranking and, you're, like, you, you rejoice for, like, one win in a week. And, you know, that's super hard. Uh, so to keep motivated and to keep active and, and, and on plan. Um, and so, you know, there's got to be a, a, an, an exit at the end. It was interesting in my last company, and, and I don't know what percentage of our SDRs transition into sales roles, but it's high. Um, most of our sales team comes from, from the SDR team, um, and which is great because then they're already practiced in doing outbound prospecting. They still own their own number of, of, um, S, of, of leads that they have to, or opportunities that they have to create on their own. Um, so that muscle's already there. Uh, trying to convert people who haven't done outbound for a long time to make them outbound is hard. I've, I've watched it's it. even a little bit of ego there too, where it's like, I don't want to prospect anymore, that type of thing. Yeah. What I've percentage there, of their time your AEs are prospecting? They're responsible for, um, I, I think it's 20%. Okay. I, I don't, I it's actually like should know. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, well, yeah. I'm almost going to tell an inside, inside scoop, um, but I think it's interesting to hold people accountable. Um, so we have a current thing going on, uh, and basically if the, if the account executive doesn't create an opportunity on their own, they don't get SDR leads the next week. So that just one opportunity? They, they have, have to, to open one opportunity by themselves to, to stay in the pool. That's why. Um, so you know, maybe a little bit of a stick there, that's but a, uh, stick. making sure that they do their their it, it, or you could look at it as a carrot because then they get accelerator, right? Then that's they true. get more yeah, um, yeah. by that's doing cool. their their job too. One thing you have a lot of experience on too is like acquisitions. You know, bringing companies into larger companies. Um, and were you a part of an acquisition as a smaller company as well? Yeah, I, good guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
that was not a hard thing to guess, I feel, oh, based on really? our previous conversation. Yeah. But um, I didn't tell you that, though. One thing that's interesting is like how, what's that experience like, especially as a larger company looking at like, why do larger companies buy smaller companies? Why do they, what do they look for, essentially? Yeah. And the failure rate of acquisitions is really high. Um, so uh, I would say that this is an area that I've just, I've, I don't know if it was because I was in product marketing for so long or in marketing, but I've spent a lot of time. And so my company was acquired into Adobe. Um, we were about $70 million, 750 people at the time. And it was the first company that Adobe had that did business direct with customers. So this is like 2001. And, um, and so they had to change their business model. They, they'd never, they'd only sold shrink wrap software. So I, I learned a lot coming into Adobe. At that point, like literally shrink wrap software. That was it. Right? Adam, yeah, yeah, in a box. Awesome. Yeah, that's I used awesome. to design boxes. Office Max, that kind um, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, there was no thing, there was no cloud. I kind of became a specialist at doing that for Adobe for quite a few years. So when we acquired Macromedia, um, integrated Macromedia into the go-to-market, Flash and Cold Fusion, specifically where the product area is. And then we acquired Day Software, which was a Swiss-based company that's now Adobe Experience Manager. Excellent, uh, excellent return on investment on that uh, one. But really helping the, the sales teams integrate, drawing that play and, and then reproducing that with all of this. I mean, we had 750 sellers when we acquired Day. And so how do you integrate a company successfully it has to be in the sales motion. I know a lot of times they're looking on now and like you let them run as a separate entity before drawing them into the go-to-market. That, that would not be my choice. I'd try and get them into the go-to-market as soon as possible because you've got all those sellers and everyone there. We've done two acquisitions or one acquisition, sorry, at, um, at Salesloft. Uh, it's a company called Note Ninja that's now our conversation intelligence capability. So for kind of recording and coaching um, uh, on, on video calls. It was amazing. We acquired the company, rebuilt their technology onto our platform in like three months and had 200 customers on the platform within six months. I've never seen anything so quick. Yeah. I mean, it was a full You can't even refactor effort. existing code that yeah. quickly in a lot of yeah. times. And, um, and there were some bumps along the way in terms of like performance and testing the, the product. So my advice would be, you know, make sure that the the tethering of the performance of your product can meet the customer demands as you're bringing in new technology. Um, but, you know, integrating it, it, it basically just became part of our, our vernacular. Um, we've learned too, is like, do you sell it as a standalone or do you sell it integrated into the platform? There's pros and cons of both. I think when you leave things standalone, if it complicates the sales cycle, like you make it harder for the sellers to sell, you want to make it easy for the sellers to sell and the buyers to buy. So as long as you're removing friction and not making it harder or an add-on or a net new thing, uh, my recommendation is always to kind of tuck it in. And when you think about, so a $75 million company, a larger company is looking that as, hey, there's real revenue here. We can like continue to scale this. And there might be like a one plus one equals two type situation, right? But when you think about like a smaller company, like something that's, you know, maybe sub 10 million, why would a company buy that, right? Like, why would a large company pick that up? Like, I don't know where Note Ninja was, but hadn't, well under. Yeah, I was going to say, hadn't heard of them in yeah. that space is yeah. like getting really, really hot, right? Yeah. So that might've been like the perfect strategic buy, but is that the only reason people buy? Because the revenue is probably, you know, at least inconsequential at that particular point. I think you want to look at what your customers need. Um, at Jive, we acquired a company that got us into SharePoint 
Um, and that was, you know, our customers were wanting us to integrate with the technology we didn't have. And we had a partner that built that integration, so we bought them. So I think you really have to listen to customer input. I think Salesforce actually does this very, very well. And I was talking to Godard Abel from um, G2 the other day, and he was, he was saying it's kind of interesting. You see, you look on the show floor, and you see how many vendors of a certain category are selling to your... He's like, I could just imagine Mark walking around and like, huh, you know, there's Steelbrick and there's Aptus and, you know, they're selling to my customers we need and I want that money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I need one of those. And, and so I think you can start to look at that when, when you look at what other technologies your customers are integrating with or reverse as, yeah. a, as a founder or a leader... I think you have to have partner as an exit strategy. Mm. I mean, of course, everybody wants to go public, but being acquired is actually a good exit as well. Yeah. Um, and, and so when you're thinking about the strategic partners that you align with, that could be a p potential exit for you. Like, mm. how do you build to their integration? How do, you, how do you show up in their ecosystem? Are you talking to their corp dev teams? Mm. Do they know who you are? So I, I think that's an important part of the overall plan. My first experience in marketing was events. I was an event marketer um, and uh, I worked for Special Events Magazine. I mean, I, I was going to build an event company. Really I actually went, I went to USC in the entrepreneur program. Um, I was, I'm a graduate of, of USC's entrepreneur program and, and I wrote my business plan on an event planning company. Um, and I think, so I started with that. I started with experience and I've always liked to produce big shows like this. And um, that whole idea of what do you, what do they think, what do they feel, what do they do, and pre, during, post, and so we use that concept a lot in a lot of the things that we do. But I, I think it's just evolved um, to you know online experiences and Adobe. We did that. We that was what we marketed as well. Um, and I think in SaaS, uh, when I left Adobe, I wanted to go work for a SaaS company. That was my goal. And so I was talking to Box and and um, Jive and, and their competitor, because it, it was the first time where I realized that you had to work as hard to keep a customer as you did to acquire a customer. And we were talking about customer experience and this whole idea of customer journey. And a marketer is at the forefront of being able to understand all the, all the touch points along the customer journey. So it's, it's also kind of cool because I look at the, from, I, I am responsible for the entire pre, before they become a customer, but once they're a customer or in the buying process, we still care and have a role in that. Once they're a customer, that onboarding process, the, the ongoing process, like I get to have that relationship and work with all the parts of the company on making sure that that customer experience is delightful and consistent. And, and, and now that's the, what our software does. So I kind of get a, I get double or it's almost like a, a threefer. Why this? versus being a firefighter, a doctor, <laughs> something else. Like, why, why is this what you wanted to do? Why be a CMO of a, a fast-growing company yeah. and previous other companies? Yeah, I really wanted to be a grocery store clerk when I was, when I was growing up. Yeah, I loved that. Was the, the ceiling. That was it, like, yeah, the, yeah, like yeah. when I was two. And then I wanted to work at Starbucks. Um, did you I, ever get to be a barista? I, I did. That's I awesome. I loved it for a summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's great. I, I just, I think I like serving people. I like understanding what customers need and want um, and being able to, to articulate that. And I think also just as a marketer, the vast variety of things I get to work on every day. I go from a strategic meeting around, you know, market sizing to, um, you know, what are we, what's our booth going to look like at, at SaaS stock uh, to, you know, sh what, what should the menu be at this dinner? I mean, 
to, and then the next, you know, then we're talking about website infrastructure and technology and like the gamut of things that I get to kind of play in an everyday hard stuff that makes your brain hurt, um, but still fun stuff that, that you get to enjoy doing. And um, when you think about creating experiences for customers or for people, I think about that holistically. I want sales off to see, you know, people to see it, smell it, taste it. Like it has a personality. And so how do I make sure that that is at, on our website in this way that we tell our stories and um, the way that we show up uh, at our events? I'm looking for how do we create that consistent brand experience regardless of how people are interacting with us. And, and for what I love about Salesoft, one of the reasons I came here is because our culture is so um, forward in the way that who we are and how we go to market. And so I know, because at the end of the day, the experience that they have with your employees is the one that's the most telling. I know the interaction they're going to have with our, with our employees are going to be servant. We have our, our vision is that sellers are going to be loved by the buyers they serve. Yeah, I, got you. I know that's ingrained. And so I can communicate that through all the different interactions um, that we create as a marketing team. Then that's kind of true to the brand. Thanks so much to Sydney for not only the time, but also telling us how she protects the hustle. With her help, now you know all about what it takes to meet the needs of your customers. We talked about the difficulty of category creation, finding marketing trends with the rule of three, the rift between marketing factions, how to acquire a company, and understanding what a customer wants and needs. Thanks for listening, and make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.